Hey, um, if you have a Bible, please turn to Matthew chapter 18. Last week, we kicked off a brand new practice on forgiving as we have been forgiven. If you are not here, please go back and listen to the podcast. A lot of myths and misconceptions around this idea of forgiving, and it was Bethany Allen at her best. So please catch up on that. For tonight, let's uh, start off in Matthew 18. I'm having, just FYI, I'm having some kind of an allergic reaction to an allergy medicine, which is kind of counterintuitive. So I feel like I've had about 35 cups of coffee and not slept in days. So we'll see how this goes, all right? No promises at all. Matthew chapter 18. He lied to me straight to my face, went behind my back, and cut me out of this business that we had just started, stole my intellectual property, went on to make money off of it, we had both quit our job to chase after this, like, craze was years and years ago, to chase after this dream that was in our heart. And uh, we had startup money set aside to live on for just a little bit. But now here I was, like, literally overnight. Not only had my dream been crushed, but I had a mortgage payment due in three weeks and no way to pay the bills. To top it off, he was my best friend, or so I thought. And we went to church together. Every Sunday, I would show up, and there he was, smiling like nothing ever happened. He's related to somebody in leadership. There was nepotism in this church, and there was just, I think he was untouchable, and he knew it. When I confronted him, he came up with this bizarre twist of logic to justify his behavior and refused to even apologize. Now, because I am a follower of Jesus, I forgave him. You know, like you do, water off my back. If anything, I let him off the hook too easy. A few years later, his whole life imploded, and to this day, he's estranged from his family and most of his friends. I wish I had actually gone farther after him. But immediately, right then and there, I made the decision out of my will to not collect on the debt that was owed me. But the problem was I was still stuck. I was able to release him, but I was not able to release me. And a year went by, and I was still stuck. Every time that his face would come to mine, which was usually about once an hour, (laughs) I was just racked by all sorts of emotions. And at the top of that list was the emotion of anger. And that anger would leak out at my family and my friends and my wife. And I wasn't angry with her. She was collateral damage. I was angry with him. I was angry at myself for being so naive and young and stupid. I was angry angry at life for being unfair. Honestly, I was even angry at God. Did you not see this coming? I was stuck in this place of pain until I began to realize that when you are hurt by somebody, not if you are hurt, but when you are hurt by somebody, releasing them from the debt that is owed you is just level one of forgiving. You're still not even close to done with your work yet. Level two is about releasing your own heart from that anger. You have to find a way in partnership with Jesus and the community of Jesus to get your heart free and healthy and whole and ideally, in a dream case scenario, to leverage the evil that was done to you and to somehow in a judo-like Jesus kind of way turn it on its head around for good. Now, when that clicked for me, I got unstuck and started to move down the path again. Now, um, it was not fast or easy. It was slow and hard. But I had Jesus out in front of me because, you see, this practice 
I would argue more than any other, is straight out of the life and teachings of Jesus of Nazareth. Matthew chapter 18, verse 21. Then Peter came to Jesus and asked, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? Up to seven times. Now a little bit of backstory. In the first century, common rabbinic teaching was that you are to forgive your brother or sister, notice that language, meaning a fellow Jew, never mind about the Gentile, but you are to forgive a fellow Jew up to seven times. So there's a limit. Right? You're not a doormat. Don't let people walk over you. After about seven, you're done. And I'm reading between the lines here, but my guess is that Peter has been following Rabbi Jesus around for a while and has a sneaking suspicion that Jesus might not buy the seven-time limit. Jesus answered, 22, I tell you, not seven times, but what? Seventy-seven times. Now, this is teacher Jesus at his best. This is hyperbole, right? He's not saying keep an Excel spreadsheet on your laptop. And when they get to 490, like you're off the hook. At that point, you're like, spouse, 491, I'm out, right? No, he's saying there is no limit. Jesus' end goal for all of his apprentices not just for Peter, but for you and for me, is to grow and to mature into the kind of people who are forgiving by nature with no limit. Now, when I read this, my inner lawyer goes off, like, objection, right? I want to raise my hand. Jesus, you don't know my pain. You don't know this scenario. You don't know that scenario. You don't know the fine print. You don't know the prenup. You don't know, like, the contract. You don't know any of that. And Jesus because he's the most brilliant teacher to ever live, does what a really good teacher does. He anticipates your objection, sees it coming a mile away, and tells a story. 23, therefore the kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. As he began the settlement, a man who owed him 10,000 bags of gold was brought to him. Now that phrase, 10,000 bags of gold, in Greek it's 10,000 talents, which was a, it was a very large unit of measurement. It was a massive sum, something, and somewhere up in the range, most economists now equate with around a trillion dollars, right on the edge of what there even was a number for. So the idea here is this is an amount that nobody could ever back, pay back, not even Elon Musk, not, well, maybe him in a few years. We'll see how Tesla does. But like nobody could ever pay this back. Since he was not able to pay, the master ordered that he and his wife and his children, all that he had, be sold to repay the debt, right? So this is the core idea of forgiving. There is a debt that is owed. At this, the servant fell on his knees before him. Be patient with me, he begged, and I'll pay back everything. Now, this is, again, lost in translation from ancient Greek to modern, you know, English. This is a joke. This is funny. And Jesus is telling this story. You would be laughing right now. This is like a minimum wage employer at the donut shop who owes a trillion dollars to somebody saying, just give me time. I'll pay you back. I promise. Yeah, that's not going to happen. The servant's master took pity on him, canceled the debt, or that can be translated forgave the debt, and let him go. But when the servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred silver coins. Now, in Greek, it's a hundred denarii. Denarius was a day's wages for a laborer. So this is about three months back pay. It's a lot of money, but it's well within a servant, even on a servant's salary, it's well within your capacity to pay back over time. Be patient with me, he said, and I will pay it back. Exact same line. But he refused. 
Instead, he went off and he had the man thrown into prison until he could pay the debt. When the other servants saw what had happened, they were outraged and went and told their master everything that had happened. Then the master called the servant, and you wicked servant, he said, I canceled all of that debt of yours because you begged me to, a trillion dollars. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you for a few thousand bucks? In anger, his master handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all that he owed. This is how my heavenly Father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother or sister from your heart. Notice that last phrase, from your heart, meaning it's not enough to just cancel the debt. Again, you're still not done. If you then harbor anger and acrimony in your heart, you have to find a way out of that. You have to find a way to forgive, to cancel the debt from your heart. And notice this is commanded by Jesus. It's not like a, hey, if you're in the mood, this is, no, this is, if you're a follower of Jesus, you are commanded to forgive as you have been forgiven. And that's the key. Jesus is not asking you to do anything that he has not already done himself. Turn over to Luke chapter 23, a few pages to the right. Luke chapter 23, take a look at verse 32. This is right before Jesus' death. Two other men, both criminals, were also led out with him to be executed. When they came to the place called the skull, or Golgotha in Aramaic, they crucified Jesus there along with these criminals. Now, was Jesus a criminal? No, he was an innocent victim, right? They crucified him along with these criminals, one on his right, the other on his left, and Jesus said, Father, strike them down for they know what they're doing. <laughs> like, pay them back in full. Leverage the power of, like, Moses or, like, whatever. No, Jesus said, Father, what? Forgive them for they do not know what they are doing. Now, one of my pet peeves, this is embarrassing to admit, my wife and I get in tiffs on this on a regular basis, is when people use a pronoun without a proper noun, drives me up the wall, all right? So when you read this, you think, okay, wait, forgive who? Forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. Who, who is them? Well, keep reading. And they divided up his clothes by casting lots. They is the executioners. So just feel the full weight and gravity of this story. Here's Jesus dying on the cross, an innocent victim, carrying the full weight of injustice on his shoulders. At his feet are men who are not only not sorry for killing him, but are gambling away his clothing, stripping him even of the dignity of that before his death. And the last words out of Jesus' mouth, Father, forgive them for they have no clue what it is they are doing. The idea here from the writer Luke is, listen, if Jesus is willing to forgive the very men who were killing him, how much more willing is he to forgive you and me? That's what Jesus is like, and by default, that is what God is like. So when you and I are commanded by Jesus to follow his example and forgive, it's rooted in his day-to-day -day life, rooted in what God has already done for you and for me. One more, turn over to Ephesians chapter four, a few pages to the right. This idea runs all the way through the New Testament. 
If you've never read um, Ephesians before, it's a first century letter written by Paul to um, followers of Jesus in the city of Ephesus. And after three chapters of writing about what Christ has done for you and me in the past, he shifts gears to what we are to do in the present and the future. Take a look at the end of chapter 4, verse 30. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Okay, how do we grieve the Holy Spirit of God? 31. Get rid of all bitterness, rage, and anger, brawling, and slander. Some of us are like, I don't get in a bar fight. Do you make a sarcastic comment? Do you gossip? Do you whisper out behind somebody's back? Along with every form of malice. So notice how the writer Paul ties the two together. Like we want to separate out when we're crosswise with a coworker or a parent or a sibling or a friend or ex-friend from our relationship to God, but it just doesn't work that way. Everything is interconnected. You're a whole person, and how you relate is how you relate. That's why unforgiveness is not only an emotional but also a spiritual blockage for a lot of people in the room right now. Some of you are stuck, again, not only emotionally, you are stuck spiritually, and there is a distance between you and God himself. And there's no guilt or shame here, but part of that distance has to do with the distance between you and other people. It's all interconnected. When we are crosswise with somebody else, when we harbor anger, bitterness, rage, gossip, when we harbor that in our heart, we grieve the Holy Spirit. Like we cut off our relationship not only to another person, but to God himself. Instead, 32, we are to be kind and compassionate. It's the same word used in Jesus' parable. It's translated merciful there, but it's the same word in Greek. To one another, what? Forgiving each other. Read that out loud with me. Forgiving each other just as in Christ God forgave you. And then here's the idea. Follow God's example, therefore, as dearly loved children and live a life of love. Don't just release the debt. No, take it to the next level to love just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God, the story that we just read. This is the call. If you are an apprentice of Jesus of Nazareth, as many in the room are, and if you're not yet, you're so welcome here, and we're just happy that you're here wherever you're at in that journey. But if you are an apprentice of Jesus, the call is to follow his example of forgiving as we have been forgiven. Now, let's take a step back and move our conversation forward. Here's our working definition. Is the demon gone yet? Nope. All right. Here's our working definition of forgiving from Dr. But notice my faith. That was admirable. Um, <laughs> here's our working definition of forgiving from Dr. Gary Brashears. Quote, my personal act to release the one who sinned against me from my personal right to collect on the moral debt, to pay them back for their offense. Instead of giving them back the pain they gave me, I absorb the pain into myself with God's help. Let me read the second half of that again. Instead of giving them back the pain they gave me, I absorb the pain into myself with God's help. Last week was all about the first half of that definition. Now we're ready to move on to the second half. Again, two levels. Level one is about releasing somebody from a debt that is owed you. Level two is about releasing your own heart from its anger. 
Level one is about them. Level two is a bit more about you. Level one is about the past. Level two is about the present and the future. Now, as we unpack this, make sure that you realize there are at least four dimensions to forgiving, if you're taking notes. First off is forgiving others for hurting us. Forgiving others. Um, forgiving your ex-husband or your ex-wife or ex-fiance or girlfriend or boyfriend or the father who abandoned you or the mother who was hyper-perfectionist and critical and overbearing and you were never good enough or just a coworker for a sarcastic dig by the water cooler or whatever it is. And that's what most of us think about when we think about forgiving. That's the first thing that comes to mind. Oh, I was wronged by so-and-so. I was hurt by this or that. But that's just the first dimension. Second dimension is forgiving ourselves for making a mess of things. Am I the only one here who makes stupid decisions from time to time? Okay, there's a few of us, all right? And uh, we're also honest, by the way. Thank you. And there are times, do you ever just beat yourself up over that stupid decision over that moment of weakness, over that bad judgment call. You've made a mess of your own life, and if you're honest, you wanna blame somebody else, but if you're honest, like you're not the victim, you're the perpetrator, and now you have to live with the consequences of your own freedom. Third category is forgiving life for being unfair. One of the first things that all parents have to teach their children is life is not what? fair. If you had like a parent that was there one day of your entire life, my guess is they said that to you at some point, right? I have three children and by nature, you know, one is older than the other two. And so by nature, one, you know, Jude gets to watch Jurassic Park before Mo gets to watch Jurassic Park, you know, and that's the fine line. And so Jude ends up watching all these movies too late to Moses all the too early. What can I say? But there's this constant conversation in our home. Can I do that? Jude does it. No, why not? Life is not fair right? But there's some like part of our humanity that says it should be, it should be, and you're right, it should be, but it's not. Why do they have that health and I have this chronic illness? Why were they born into the picture-perfect family and I was born with no, I don't know who my dad is. Why did they grow up in wealth and went to the best college and, and they're lazy and here I am, I have this intellect, I have whatever, and I like None of that. No head start. Why do they have privilege and I don't have privilege? And like there's a part of us that it's really easy to get angry about this and to let that anger corrode the lining of your own heart. Fourth category is forgiving God for not saving us the way we think he should have. Now let me clarify my language here because I cringe just to even read that out loud. I hear this on a regular basis. I hear people, mostly millennials, of which I am one, so insider critique, all right? On a regular basis, I hear people say, I'm just forgiving God for whatever, and I hate it. Honestly, it just feels blasphemous to me. It feels like millennial entitlement at its worst. It feels like bad theology and people blaming God for things that he is not responsible for, and half the time, you are the one who's responsible for. And yet, if I'm honest, even if you don't have that heart posture of millennial entitlement, even if you don't have lousy theology, even if you're not blaming, can we all be honest that most of us, let's just be pretty much all of us, at times are angry with God? God, did you not see this coming? I was praying, I was fasting, like you, you could have warned me, I was there. It's not like I was just playing video games all the time, or maybe you were, but whatever. 
I was there like, why, why God? Why would you allow this to happen? Why would you not warn me? Why would you not, why, here I am. I'm, I'm asking for you to get me out of it and nothing, heaven is silent. And so often we harbor feelings of anger, not only at other people, not only at ourselves, not only at life for being unfair, it's honestly, and we're scared to even admit this in church, we harbor feelings of anger even at God. And if you nurse a grudge at God, you cut yourself off from the one true source of comfort and healing and freedom. You move in the exact opposite direction of life. My point is that there are at least four dimensions to forgiving. Forgiving others, forgiving ourselves, forgiving life for being unfair, and forgiving God, and what I mean by that is dealing with our feelings of anger at God. And none of us get to opt out of this practice of forgiving because we all get hurt in life. All of us. Some more than others, for sure. But nobody comes into adulthood unwounded. If you think you're unwounded, the odds are you're just not self-aware. Psychologists call children pre-neurotic. That is why your child loves you if you're his father or mother. They don't realize how much you've messed them up yet. <laughs> this is one of the most humbling things for me as a dad is to recognize that no matter how good of a father I am, I will hurt and wound my children. Now, hopefully a lot less than the other guy or whatever, but I will hurt my son. I will wound my daughter is why humility, my dad's down here in the front row. I can remember my dad apologizing to me and teaching me how as a parent to apologize to your child. Son, daughter, I'm sorry. I just had to do this last night. I'm sorry. I lost my temper with you. I'm tired and grouchy. That is not the man I want to be, and that is not what God the Father is like. Will you please forgive me? You have to model this for your children because you will hurt your children. Unless if you figure out the whole perfection thing, and if so, please shoot me an email, all right? <laughs> and take my job. <laughs> um, but unless if you figure that out, you will hurt your children, you will wound your children, and by the grace of God, at a psychological level, the brain does not fully develop into self-awareness until 22, and by then they're out of the house and you're safe, okay? So my goal as a dad is just to raise my children to need as little therapy as possible, but they will need therapy. It's not a question of if, it's a question of when. My point is that all of us, whether you come from the picture-perfect family, I had a great dad, or from trauma, we all come into life wounded, at least a little bit beat up, a little bit stomped on, treated unfairly at least once or twice, if not a whole lot more, ignored, rejected, demeaned, homeschooled, you know, whatever. <laughs> We're all wounded, a little autobiography right there. We're all wounded and in pain. And that pain, listen, if it's not dealt with, it does not go away. It just goes under the surface and it leaks out, usually at the people that you're closest to, usually at your family if you have one, or your roommate, or your brother, or your sister, or your spouse, or your own child, and it leaks out as anger, as violence at times, or just as a spirit of sarcasm in your home, or a dig, or as gossip, or a cold shoulder. My point is, the question isn't, how do you get through life without being hurt? Not gonna happen. The question is, when you are hurt, how do you deal with it? Again, it's not, how do you get life through life without being wounded? No, it's, 
when you are wounded, how will you deal with it? When you're hurt or wounded by other people, by your own bad decisions, by just life in general, the economy, the global warming, climate, whatever it is, by even your view of God, what then? We have to figure out how to deal with our hurt because, listen very carefully, what we don't transform, we transmit. As the saying goes by popular cliche, hurt people hurt. There is more truth than that than most of us realize. There's data now behind that at a sociological and psychological and criminal science level. Something like, depending on which study you read, at least low estimate, 90% of abusers were themselves abused. Sexual, physical, mental, emotional. But the follow-up to that, and here's the beautiful healing truth, is that not all hurt people hurt. A bunch of us are reading Jordan Peterson's book right now, clinical psychologist, and he makes the point that almost all sexual predators were themselves preyed upon as children, yet not all people who are molested go on to become molesters. Most don't. So some of us are wounded, whether it's in that way or another, again, minor or major, and then we internalize that wound, and it goes under the surface, and in time we just pass it on through generational sin to our own children, to somebody next to us, to somebody often that we love. Other people are wounded, but they find a way to absorb that evil into their own body and to stop it dead in its tracks. Leo Tolstoy, in his writings on nonviolence, called this breaking the chain of evil. Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. later picked up on Tolstoy's language and used it in the civil rights movement. And they both, one dealing with communism and class, another dealing with the civil rights movement and racial injustice, systemic injustice in our nation, they both made the point that all of humanity, from two coworkers and a spat at the office to two nations under threat of nuclear war, well, now we're having coffee, so I guess we're okay now, but whatever. All of humanity is locked in a vicious cycle of tit-for-tat. You hurt me, I hurt you back. You gossip about me, I make fun of you. You make a sarcastic comment about me, I shame you on social media. You steal my promotion, I sabotage your career. You fly your airplane into my building, I invade your country. You make one comment about me on Twitter, I rain down fire and fury in a best-selling book. Whatever it is. This is the vicious cycle of the human condition, and there is one and only one way to break this vicious cycle, and it is not to pay back in kind. It is not with violence. Jesus made that crystal clear. All violence, literal or symbolic, all it can do is keep evil in check. And depending on your philosophy of evil, whatever, there is a place for that, but it cannot deal with the root problem of evil in the human heart. The way to break the vicious cycle is through nonviolent, self-sacrificial forgiving or through the way of Jesus. Level one, through releasing somebody from the debt that is owed you, but also level two, through absorbing that ugly thing into your own self and then finding a way to transform it into something beautiful for the world. Ronald Rollheiser writes this, quote, any pain or tension that we do not transform, we will transmit. In the face of jealousy, anger, bitterness, and hatred, we must be, and I love this imagery, like water purifiers, holding the poisons and toxins inside of us and giving back only the pure water. I, I live in this old Portland house with really bad piping, and this morning I was filling up our Brita water filter, and the water at the top was gray, 
borderline yellow, really gross. The water at the bottom was clear, and I want to believe pure. I just want to believe that, all right? Anybody else, you know? I love that imagery of a water purifier. Listen, rather than being like electrical cords that simply pass on the energy that flows through them, the natural, instinctual temptation in the face of jealousy, anger, bitterness, and hatred is to give back in kind. You hate me, so I will hate you. But we are invited to something higher. When you are hurt, when we are wounded, it's like there are two roads. And the low road is you pay back in kind. Oh yeah, well here's this. And at best, you keep evil in check for a bit. And that, by the way, is only if you have a bigger stick. Otherwise, you just get beat up. But at best, you keep evil in check. At worst, and far more likely, you ratchet the evil up a notch. And a bad problem is even worse. The high road is one, you release the debt that is owed you. You cancel the debt. All right, I forgive. And then you find a way to transform it. To put a little flesh and blood on this idea, stories. I have one friend, um, a number actually, but one that comes to mind, who was a, a <laughs> even for a homeschooler, that's not bad, you know? <laughs> um, and uh, he was abandoned by his father at a young age. And honestly, he's still there. He's my age, but he's still stuck at the emotional maturity of a middle schooler. Can't handle any kind of authority, which means he can't really be an authority. Can't hold down a job for more than a few years, just thing to thing to thing, job to job, city to city. And he's not a bad guy, he's a good guy. But he's never dealt with that pain. I have another friend who was abandoned by his father around the same age. He's since started a nationwide mentoring program pairing thousands of fatherless boys with older, wiser men. He found a way to take his pain and transform it into an agent of healing. The very thing that was used against him was later used by him, and he moved from victim to agent of healing. Here's a more ordinary example. I have one friend whose dad wasn't a bad guy at all. Um, to this day, there's, they're not, there's not a father wound. They were in good relationship. He just worked too much and was emotionally unavailable. And now I'm watching this exact same pattern play out with his son and his grandson. Another friend from the exact same kind of upbringing, not a bad dad, just workaholic and emotionally unavailable, upper middle class, all of that stuff where you think loving your children is you go to the office for another hour and make more money, which is a lie from our culture. And this friend, I watched him, he just recently turned down a promotion to make a lot more money, to move ahead in his career, he's right, he's my age, right at that age, you, to be more, to be home and be more present. He has a number of little children, and he just wants to be there in a way that his dad wasn't. He found a way to take his pain and to transform it into an agent of healing. Remember, this doesn't just apply to other people. Think of all four dimensions, other people, ourself, life, even God. I've watched two, um, a number of friends, uh, two pastor friends of mine, one here in town, and uh, two family members, actually, in my extended family, I've watched them give birth to a special needs child. And uh, obviously I don't know what that is like, but I have front row seats to loved ones who do. From them I've learned that over 90% of Down syndrome children are aborted. Special needs children are an oppressed minority that you hear little to nothing about in American culture. There's no hashtag, there's no speech at the Oscars, there's no cry of investigative journalists, just silence. 
And most couples that give birth to special needs end up divorced within a few years, the pain, the trauma on the marriage, on the family. And I've watched these families suffer, and that is, as a, that is what it is. But then I've watched what it has done as they have been transformed by this experience. Two of them are starting nonprofits to do ministry to other families with special needs children. Another is doing a parenting ministry and just has this whole depth to them. The other has just been transformed. I remember them before, and now I know them after, and they are not the same. They found a way to take the unfairness of life. Why me? And to transform the very thing that was used against them into an agent of healing, to move from victim to agent of healing. My point is, there's a high road and there's a low road, and we are called by Jesus of Nazareth to follow him on this, hard, this higher road. But this is hard to do, am I right? Everything in us just screams against it. If you're anything like me, when I am hurt, when I am wounded, when I have been, from my vantage point, the victim of injustice, my like, prefrontal cortex is just like a distant memory. My limbic system takes over, and I'm, like, I'm just shut down. I'm paralyzed, and then I erupt in anger and rage, just like a two-year-old in a temper tantrum. So if this is hard for you, don't beat yourself up. It's hard for all of us, and I would argue this is not good news, but as you get older, this gets harder, not easier. Rollheiser, um, who I quoted a minute, let me quote him again. This is from his book, Sacred Fire, which is a book I've read, I think, four or five times the last few years, all about following Jesus in the middle years of your life. And he has this whole section on forgiveness because he just makes the point that when you're young, in your youth, in your 20s, the primary temptation is lust, but as you age, the primary temptation is anger because you realize all the ways that you've been hurt. And he writes this, as we age, we can begin to trim down our spiritual vocabulary and eventually we can get it down to just three words, forgive, forgive, forgive. The major task, psychological and spiritual, for the second half of our lives is to forgive. We need to forgive, here's the paradigm, those who have hurt us, forgive ourselves for our own failings, forgive life for not being fully fair, and forgive God for seemingly being so indifferent to our wounds. We need to do that before we die because ultimately there's only one moral imperative, not to die an angry, bitter person, but to die with a warm heart. I just watched my grandmother die in my dad's house a few months ago. And it was a stark reminder for me, for our family, that when you come to the end, you see who people actually are. All of the gossamer over the surface in an image-conscious culture is gone. The ephemerance of youth, the makeup, the plastic surgery, the image, the money, the status, it's all stripped away and you are left with nothing but character and relationship. This is why most elderly people are either the best or the worst. You know what I'm talking about? Can we just be honest? I don't mean that in an ageist way. Do you know a lot of elderly people that are just kind of in the middle? No, I don't. Most of them are relaxed and laugh easy and enjoy life and are full of warmth. Others are just mad and grouchy, and if you don't put the TV remote back in the right angle, then it's just, oh, can, you know? <laughs> it just comes out, right? 
and we laugh, but how many of you want to die that way? Crotchety old man or an unhappy old woman. The reality is these two roads lead to two very different destinations. And again, the only two things that you carry with you past death and into resurrection is the man or the woman that you become through apprenticeship to Jesus and the relationships that you have with other people. In the end, that is what matters, character and relationships. Two roads, two very different destinations. I think Jesus said something about that. Which one are you on? Am I? Our practice for the week ahead is all on practicing the, <laughs> I keep turning to the slide, demon be gone, all right? Is all on practicingtheway.org for giving. If you're in a Bridgetown community, you have all of this. If you're not in a Bridgetown community, please sign up for our next basics class. This right here is just the tip of the iceberg. This is not even the best part of our church. The best part by far is not hundreds of people in a room, but is a dozen people around a table. We believe in the duality of church around a stage and around a table, not one or the other. The basic idea for you um, and your community in the week ahead is just to begin this long, slow journey from level one to level two, to do a little, little, little bit of listening prayer, which you started last week, brainstorm with your community, however you're wired, introvert, extrovert, busy, little children, single, whatever. You wanna journal, you're a verbal processor, you wanna go hash it out with your best friend over coffee, however you do this. The idea is to brainstorm what, what's the hurt in my life or the wound? What's a way not just to like, okay, not collect on the debt, but to actually move forward and transform it into an agent of healing for the world. Because this is, this is like the gospel direction of Jesus in and through your life. And again, this is hard to do to walk the long, slow road of forgiving as you have been forgiven. But remember our working definition, the end of it, quote, I absorb the pain into myself with God's help. And I would add to that, not to add to Dr. Brashears, but I would add, but to add to Dr. Brashears, <laughs> with the people of God's help. This makes me think of, you know, Alexander Pope's famous poem that has turned into a cliche, to err is what? human, we all hurt, we all wound, we're all victim and perpetrator, to forgive is what? Divine. What Pope was tapping into is something that we all know. We need to forgive, but we need help to forgive. And the good news of the gospel of Jesus is that we have help from the Spirit of God here and now, from the community of God to your right and to your left. Let's stand together and pray.